Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 44, Spacecraft Displays. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, this is the one where we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information that's going on right here at NASA. So today we're talking about NASA's deep space human capsule, Orion, which we've discussed several times on the podcast, giving an overview of the capsule, what it would be like to live on it for up to three weeks. But today's episode is focusing specifically on the screens and how they've evolved over time from the shuttle era now to future spacecraft. Coming on the show once again is Jeff Fox, chief engineer of the Rapid Prototype Lab at the Johnson Space Center. He's been on the podcast before, and he actually brought some of the audio that from the test run that we've done on Orion, uh, specifically EFT-1. We'll talk about that later. And he gave us a really cool audio experience of riding on a spacecraft. And now he's back to tell us about some of the details behind some of the new displays that are going on Orion. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Jeff Fox. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Jeff, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Glad to have you back because you've already been here before, right? Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. And that was actually a really good episode, the one we did before. That was uh, Ride on Orion. You actually brought some of the audio from the inside of the EFT-1 capsule, and we got to play it in the middle of the episode. Yeah, that, yeah I remember <laughs> that. That's great. In fact, we've done many a tour since that episode. Really? And yes. you, have you gotten any comments about the episode? Yes, uh, quite a number of people either approached me you know, through email <laughs> or... Uh, in the hallway, and uh, most of the feedback's been good. Maybe they won't tell me if it's bad, but <laughs> but I'm I'm very happy that I didn't say something that uh, sounded too bad. So no, um, absolutely not. That's why I, I'm glad to have you again because that was a really good episode, and 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 I think this is a good follow up to it because it's kind of a continuation of the Rapid Prototype Lab. Last time we talked mostly about those. Um, uh, you were able to play these sounds and kind of sit in this almost simulator and, and feel like what it was like to, to launch in the EFT-1 capsule, to, to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. But there's this whole other section that's uh, dealing with uh, screens, right, that you actually are, are looking at and working with the screens that are actually going to be used inside of Orion, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, if you imagine uh, the cockpit is three eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper in the portrait or vertical format separated by about let's say four to six inches six inches in between each roughly mm -hmm. and then each of those pieces of glass those monitors are think of a line drawn horizontally through them so you have a top half and a bottom half so you have three of these screens each has a top half and a bottom half that's the the sum total of the display real estate that the crew has to view everything so take take us through like a I guess an audio tour of this of the rapid prototype lab. I don't think we did that the last episode because because it's kind of sectioned off and it's in a building that's it's the same building where the I think astronauts are right. Am I? That's right. And okay. It is part of the crew office. And yeah. It's on the fifth floor. It's on one of the corners of the building, kind of uh, you know controlled access. But uh, you know the main charter of the RPL is to build the prototype crew displays that are going to be flown in the Orion spacecraft, the ones that the crew will use to monitor and control the spacecraft. 
Okay, so that's is that I'm guessing that's one of the rooms, right? We, are, are you actually bringing the astronauts from across the hall and saying, "Hey, sit down. I want you to see how this thing is working." We do do that, and, yeah. and, and uh, yes, we we have to evaluate the displays when we we build prototypes. So we definitely put the crew in front of those. Uh, to do that, we created a simulator, a couple simulators. Uh, huh. One that you we talked about before, the one where you lay on your back, and then two other orbit or upright ones. Hmm. Uh, we also had to assemble all the hardware to create these simulators. So we have a 3D printer, we have folks that uh, do some electronics work and assemble all the screens. Uh, so we have prototype displays to play the prototype hardware displays to put the software displays on there so that the crew can evaluate you know, what we're doing. Okay, and they kind of get the experience. It's it's not just here's the system, you know, check it out. It's all right. We're gonna put you in the, I guess this is the environment of of Orion. This is this is kind of what it's gonna feel like when you're in the real thing. So, and this is what the controls are going to do. So, I guess kind of running through those procedures. Yes, we wanted to give the crew a feel of that. I mean, it's one thing to do a PowerPoint and then have somebody look at it and talk to it. It's another thing if you can write some basic code behind it, make the buttons change or the the data change in a way that would be representative of the flight so that when the crew goes through the interface with the controls on Orion, it feels and acts like what it would look like. Now, the flight vehicle will be different in the way it implements that, but we need the feedback on how's it working. And because we are way ahead of the of the whole operational environment with training, we've got to create these things to be able to get input on these displays early enough on to get them in the design of the vehicle. We can't wait till the end because software is obviously complicated, has a very long logistics tail. Absolutely. And this is, it kind of has a history too. So it's not like you just decided, ah, this is the best thing. This is kind of based on some lessons and some upgrades that were necessary based on the procedures that were even back in the shuttle days. And I'm sure you had, you were working with some of the crews to work with some of the systems back in the shuttle days, right? Yes, yes, and let me give you just a little quick history on the RPL itself kind oh, of yeah. coming into being. The the concept of having the crew involved in evaluating and, and having input into the crew interface has been around for many, many years. You know, even going back, if you think of the program before this, uh, crew, uh, CAU for the shuttle, mm-hmm. uh, and also the uh, some input in the X-38 and, and other vehicles. So we have that that experience, you know, centuries of experience in the cockpit to bring to bear on this. Yeah. So just to compare and contrast a little bit with shuttle, I, you know, I was very fortunate. I started working here in 84 and was heavily involved in shuttle through about 96 and in different capacities, starting off as an instructor in the systems world. And for people who don't know what systems is, that's like environmental control, life support, you know, freon loops, water loops, breathing air, uh, APUs, electrical power, those kinds of things. <clears throat> all the systems that actually make the spacecraft work. That Well, there's, there's guidance, navigation, control, yeah, propulsion, yeah. communications, yeah. so rendezvous. There's quite a number of them. So, you know, for example, on shuttle, you know, you're dealing with a design that's, you know, early 70s. Or, you know, when you get in the shuttle, you can see the switches have that feel of an older cockpit. That doesn't mean bad. That just means that was the design, that was the concept, and it worked well. It served us very well. You're talking a cockpit that had approximately in the range of one to 2,000 hard control points, be it Whoa. a switch, a circuit breaker, a, a gauge, you know, a, a physical thing you could touch. Uh, then you had, 
you started off with just a limited number of screens uh, and you had a lot of paper procedures. Uh, you had up to, up to a couple hundred pounds of procedures and they addressed every manner of the flight phase from ascent orbit and entry to you know, post-insertion, deorbit prep, getting ready to come home, rendezvous, uh, RMS, you know, the robot arm. That's a lot of paper. It's a stack of paper. Maybe it's as tall as you, you know, <laughs> and that's a lot of weight, a lot of mass. But it did the job well. You know, you could pull a book out. You could put it on your lap. You could have that book that had your favorite notes in it about, don't forget to flip this switch. I always miss it in this procedure. You could get a message on your uh, a panel, what we call the F7 panel that had a, you know, kind of like an idiot light on it and a, and a software message on the screen and go, oh, that's what it is. And, and I'd say, hey, I know what procedure to work. I'd look at my display, which is right there, get data about it. I'd read the procedure. The procedure would say, do this. And in order to do something, I had to throw a switch. Mm -hmm. So I go over on a switch on a panel, maybe to my left. Maybe it's a Freon pump I have to turn off and turn a different one on. So I'd reach over and do that and it'd be done. Now it sounds like a lot, it sounds complicated, but it was very quick because everything was in my gaze immediately. The error message, the data on the display, the procedure and the switch. So very quickly I can get trained to see all those things, move and throw a switch, I'm recovered. Mm -hmm. So actually that system worked very well. And that's what, is, the, is that what you were doing as a systems instructor? You were taking the astronauts through each system and, and these procedures that you're talking about too? Yes. Yeah, so when I started off, I always like to say, you know, they were training me for several years, the <laughs> crews. You know, you're, you're just happy to be there. You're learning. You're trying to stay very open-minded because yeah. you've got a lot to learn. Still the case today. Um, <clears throat> and we started off learning the individual systems one at a time as an example uh, in something called the single systems trainer. In fact, for folks that are here at JSC, if you go over to building 30 and you look in the lobby, there's one of them there. And that was where you would just train one system at a time. There's another one in building four north in the lobby as well, I believe. But we would go in there and for example, I can remember vividly one training session uh, on the environmental control and life support system. It's just you and one person. And it was to, to, to today, it's one of the highlights to be able to sit in with a crew one-on-one -on -one and try to, you know, impart on them some knowledge about how a system works or what to do when it doesn't work. And I remember vividly uh, having John Young in there one time, and I'd only been here like two years, you know, I think I was 26 at the time. Yeah. And I didn't know anything too much about John other than, hey, this guy walked on the moon. And I'm thinking, wow, that this is, you know, I've got him here, I'm training him, I think he's training me. <laughs> so anyway, so as we got through this two-hour lesson, about a half an hour in, I'm just dying. I'm saying, i got to ask him. So, you know, i got to ask him, what was it like to walk on the moon? So I just broke down and said, I'm going to ask. And I asked him. And I remember he started talking, and my eyes got wide, and my mouth was open, and he probably talked for 20 minutes on it. And people would ask me to this day, what did he say? And I says, I have no idea. I can't remember, but I just knew I asked him, and I was wide-eyed and soaking it all in. And I said, "But I got to ask him." So it was, you know, it was one of the perks. Uh, you know, just a fun time. But that was a single systems trainer. We also had the shuttle trainers, the simulators. Some folks might remember those, and those had all of the systems in them. Some of them we touched on earlier, mm -hmm. um, and those all worked integrated together. And uh, the instructor teams would work with the crew and we would uh, work through different scenarios with all the paper and the switches and voice loops and, and uh, manage the data that way. And then we also uh, would uh, train with the flight controllers after the crew got a somewhat proficient. 
we would flow that data to the control center like we do today. Mm -hmm. And we were on training teams back behind the glass over in the control center, instigating the problems and trying to make life miserable for flight control and <laughs> trying to put them in positions, you know, to make good decisions you know sometimes they went ways we didn't even expect so uh, we learned from them so wow all right I, w I wanted to back up to that single systems trainer that you were talking about it sounds like if you're looking inside the shuttle cockpit you said there's somewhere between one and two thousand switches and and that's a lot so you it sounds like you're sort of training these astronauts in stages so you sort of put them in an environment where you're dealing with maybe one system and you are working on the controls and okay these controls work on this particular system now let's go to another one with this particular system and then eventually you get to a point where everything is in front of you and you have to know and maybe maybe you're blending your thoughts from okay you're training from this system to this system so is that is that kind of the process the training flow for astronauts or am i getting that wrong no that's very good and in fact uh you know we didn't have the advantage really computers were just starting oh, back yeah. then uh, a little quick note we in our office i have to share this with folks oh yeah and, uh, i remember distinctly we were in building four north this old building that's been around since apollo times there's about six of us in this room just jammed in and this computer came in and we're like well, what, what do we do with this thing right and it's like it had a five and a five and a quarter inch floppy disk for people that know what that is or if you want to look it up and see what it is <laughs> and so we're looking at this screen it's got a keyboard and we're like do you want to use it no i don't want to use it do you want it no, i don't want it so what we did is we put it on a bookcase in the middle of the room and said, if somebody wants to use it, they can stand up and use it right here. So, I mean, that was, that's all we knew. And then we said, hey, but there are some guys down the end of the hall and they got this computer and it's got this like eight inch floppy. These people must be really smart. We don't know what it does, but you know, we, we just thought, hey, they, floppy, that was they, the, they were smarter than we were. Yeah. The advantage and nowadays, you know, you've got the electronic media and you've got much better methods to train people with, right? But back then for us and the astronauts alike, flight controllers, you came in, you were gonna learn a system, you, you got a stack of workbooks. That workbook, I can remember having a workbook stacked two or three feet high and thinking, I'm never going to get through this. So the crews would, you know, read those things. We had, you know, some uh, classroom training and other ways to, to, to train people. And then they would work their way up, like you mentioned, to mm -hmm. the single systems trainer, train one trainer, one system at a time. They would do a lot of those, put all the pieces of all the systems together. Then, if you will, graduate up to something like the shuttle mission simulator, where they'd be with other crew. They would have all the simulation, uh, you know, systems together at once, and then they could, you know, fly a mission or, or, or practice a, a, a launch or an abort or, or that type of thing. Yeah. So if you if you're working with a book and eventually you go through all of your systems and you and you know each individual part, now you're dealing with a handbook that's as high as you. How do you know what? To flip to, how do you know, are, are the astronauts expected to memorize these procedures or at least know kind of what to do, or do they have maybe people helping them along the way? Well, there are some that did memorize quite a number of them. You know, you had a core wow. team on the shuttle, right, on the flight deck. You had the commander in the left seat, the pilot in the right seat, and in the center seat just behind them was the MS-2, Mission Specialist 2, or uh, I think of him more as like the conductor and, and keeping everybody on track because, you know, you've got people responsible for flying the vehicle and, and, and in charge of the overall thing and the other seat maybe with critical systems and the, the guy in the center, the MS-2, the flight engineer keeping you honest. So they would work together as a team working through things. 
So how would the crew possibly keep track of all these procedures? It's a great question. Well, the books are split up in different ways. You've got books that they use on ascent or launch, books on orbit, books on entry, that type of thing. Then they're subdivided into books where you are working in that are nominal procedures when everything is going right, and then books where we call them off-nominal, where things are going wrong. Hmm. So an example on an ascent, you might have the ascent checklist. That's good, everything's going good, I'm flipping through it, I'm monitoring things. Then you'd have a book called the Ascent you know, Entry Systems or, or Ascent Pocket Checklist, and those would represent different times throughout the Ascent where if something goes wrong, I'm going to flip through that book, and that book was further subdivided by systems. So you know, if I had a problem in that uh, one of the propulsion systems, the engines, I'd flip to that tab, read something, and it would tell me what to do. Uh, and again, it was a, a team effort, you know, folks watching and checking you, especially on critical switch throws. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing the emergency handbooks were a little bit larger than the regular nominal handbooks, right? I'm guessing you have a lot more in case something goes wrong. Well, there was all manner of them. You know, if you yeah. think on the critical flight phases, you know, your launch and landing, ascent and entry. You might have things called cue cards that were literally Velcro to the panel, very short, critical steps. So I don't have time to get down to other things. I need some stuff right in front of me, you know. Then you had other books that were called flip books, and that might be another level of criticality, maybe just one off of that. Then you have another book that you would open called, let's say, the Pocket Checklist that was after that, and maybe that's after um, further along the ascent or the engines have shut down. I want to open that book because there's other steps I need to work in that failure chain to look at things, but I don't want to be doing that while I'm you know, burning on engines. If my engines are good and I'm safe and I'm going uphill, mm-hmm. I don't want to be working a lot of the things I need to monitor that whole uh, flight phase and make sure nothing bad is going on. And as I have time and the criticality is less, then I can get to follow-on recovery procedures. Okay. So it seems like there's a lot of training that they have to do. And, and especially, it sounds like when they're, when they're studying these procedures, they have to know more about each, at least the steps. At least, okay, now I'm at this part. If something goes wrong, i got to flip to this part of my book and follow the procedure. Not may, maybe nece- uh, necessarily memorizing the procedures each and every single one in order exactly the way it is, but maybe at least, okay, I know, I know where to go. It's like looking at a map. You're like, okay, if I were to pull out the map, I know I'm here, and then you just kind of look at the surrounding area. Is that, I guess that's the kind of the logic of, of training for systems. True, except that bit. I would say, if you talk to some of those crews, I bet the ones that had to put their hands uh, on the switches or the displays around a certain system, I bet they've read, and if they haven't memorized, they pretty much know what's going to happen, but they're not yeah. just going to blindly execute it. They're going to read it because, you know, when you get in the cockpit, you lose IQ points, and, you know, <laughs> you need to you – you're trying to, you know, make sure you don't make a mistake. You're reading it carefully, and if you need to get double-checked or backed up before you throw a critical switch. Um, but I'll bet that they have been through every inch of that book and, and, and looked at it because I know I would if I was putting my hands on yeah. those switches. You don't want to you don't want to make a mistake. Absolutely, because I guess you can. It's fair to say that through each of those procedures, they've they've actually practiced it, right? They've actually they've actually gone through, read it, at least some of them they've practiced. probably read it. Whether they've executed every single procedure or we have had time to throw every scenario, every failure in. Um, Ooh, yeah. In all of these books, 
maybe not. Yeah. You know, a lot of them can be repetitive. Let's say it's an electrical system. You know, you there's all kind of electrical buses. Do you have to have every electrical bus fail and work every one of those to be qualified to work it? Probably not, but there might be some idiosyncrasies with some you want to make sure you target. Like if you lose that one, there's this little nuance. So we, as a training team and the crew, we'd be sure we would do that one. Yeah. So as an instructor, you, you, I guess you s- sort of uh, saw the astronauts go through this, this training program to, to learn the systems from day one until the day they flew. How long did, what did it actually take for an astronaut to go through that? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and some of that varied, and I'm really stretching my memory going back. And for <laughs> folks that are listening that may know better than me, forgive me. But, um, you know, typically once the crew had like a – they got trained, and they went in the pool. Then they get assigned to a flight, and then they get some – there's several things going on. You've got the dynamic flight phases of the vehicle, like launch, landing, you know, that type of stuff that are very intensive training, hundreds of hours just in the simulator. Wow. And you would add on flying the shuttle training aircraft and other simulators and, you know, a, a lot of different things. Then you have, well, the reason you're there on orbit is to do some kind of science or payload, right? So you have other folks that are maybe in another parallel flow working real hard to do that training so they not got to know that thing inside and out you know if something goes wrong they're the ones that got to to, they're there to fix it put their hands on it you know there's similarities to station there's some commanding that was available from the ground i don't know it was as as extravagant as it is now Mm. but you're the one that was responsible for that and again uh so you know summarizing typical training flow well it depended on the mission and i'm really stretching my memory but for some complex missions, it could be a couple of years. But you'd have people, you know, getting smart on payloads and other things, you know, well in advance of their assigned crew training, which typically might start about nine months out from, from launch, where you would start to come together as a crew and do some basic stuff in the shuttle simulator and your other satellite, you know, one-on-one type of training courses. So uh, the amount of time you'd spend, again, for ascent entry, you know, hundreds of hours, several hundred hours just in the simulator. And then, again, another group of people doing the payloads. They might do a couple hundred hours or more just on their payload, independent of you. And then we might culminate into something called a long sim where we would bring everybody together. And it might be a 36-hour or two-day sim where you would actually run it continuously you know, have shift changes in the control center. The crew might go home and sleep during the crew sleep period, but then come back. And we would generally try to work in one of those, uh, I believe, for each sim, and we would figure out what the optimum part of that timeline was to work. So those were always interesting. Yeah, because you were basically simulating a mission. This, this is what you would do in the mission. You would go home and sleep, and, you know, you, you'd be taking turns, that sort of thing. Correct. You, you yeah. at least get that key part of the mission that, that made sense. Obviously, you weren't going to do nine, ten days, two weeks, yeah. but you were going to select a, a portion of it. So as a systems instructor, what systems were you instructing for? Was it mainly the life support systems? Were you, did you kind of have a more of a broad approach? Systems is kind of a, a collection of yeah. different ones. Uh, okay. When I say environmental control and life support, I mean, you know, the uh, breathing air, yeah. um, freon loops and water loops and air loops that are used to cool equipment and you know, atmospheric conditioning and, and that type of thing. Auxiliary power units, you know, th- those are, yeah, I think most folks know what that is. Um, hydraulics was another one. 
uh, electrical buses, the power system, ele electrical power system. Uh, so you were touching all of these? All these cryo, wow. the cryo tanks, which drove the chemical reaction to produce the electricity, which also made the water. Uh, so those systems, and you had mechanical systems, some of those like the payload bay doors. Um, then you had a little bit of a caution warning system, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a, quite a broad brush. Wow. Yeah, you must, you must have known those systems inside and out then, right? <laughs> we had to know them pretty well because yeah. you always never knew what kind of question you were going to get asked. That's and, right. And at that time, uh, the flight control was a separate division. And uh, I remember that we always wanted to put training and flight control together. And now I think we've successfully done that in this day and age where, you know, you, you know your systems inside and out on the station. You've been on console and... Now, that's the people we want to be training the crew. Back then, you know, there was so, uh, we had, it was just a different model. We had the training guys, we had the flight control guys, and, you know, we might know it to one level, flight control would know it to another level and operational, and then you had the engineering folks that might know the nuts and bolts of how the thing was made at a different level. So all those folks had to work together whenever you had an issue uh, during a mission to try to resolve a problem. So was there anything that changed over your 12-year time of, of working as a systems instructor? Did things improve? Did you sort of change the or tweak maybe procedures as you were going along, or maybe the technology improved? Uh, you know, uh, we there, there was a, a one upgrade in the shuttle, uh, although I didn't work it directly. Hmm. We had a lot of, we call them steam gauges, you know, on the forward panel. You know, if you know what the ADI or the eight ball is on there, it was a mechanical instrument, you know, expensive, calibrated, got to be maintained, have a so, certain amount of them. Well, that could be replicated digitally as well. So there was an upgrade made uh, that allowed us to digitally replicate that. That was a good thing. So that was something that was done right in the cockpit. Hmm. Um, that was done across a number of displays that the crew could look at on the forward console. So it took the place of other steam gauges, ADIs, tapes, meters, things like that. Uh, so that was a physical improvement you could see. Uh, it was probably more of a maybe a cost, high cost to put in, but hopefully uh, maintaining it was lower. I never was close to the numbers on that. Yeah. But the procedures, you know, we would update those if we found problems. That was a continual thing. You know, you're always trying to stay ahead or your mission had something unique. So you were changing procedures or updating them in real time and training on them before the mission. So let's jump ahead now to taking some of these lessons, some of these, uh, your work instructing astronauts to work these systems. Let's jump ahead now to Orion and go back to these three screens that are kind of split from top to bottom and what has changed with all these procedures of flipping all these knobs that are all within eye shot looking at these screens now what's the the new setup for this new vehicle okay so unlike shuttle which we mentioned how many uh physical control points they had yeah think of more along the lines of 60 70 switches on a forward panel there might be a handful somewhere else in the vehicle and the the waste control system area or lights or different comm or data little ports, but the majority are in front of you on the panel by these three pieces of glass that the displays are on. But the majority of those 60 to 7 switches, I'd say they're either used off nominally if there's a problem or maybe post splashdown or that type of thing. They're not routinely thrown. Hmm. So there's a lot of control points, though, in all these systems 
on the Orion spacecraft. You know, they still have cooling loops and communication systems and all these things that were represented by a hard switch for the most part on the shuttle are now a software blip on a screen that's under that piece of glass that we talked about. So you have to design these displays to throw these switches in the software, whereas you could reach and grab a physical switch on the shuttle before. If you've ever seen a shuttle cockpit, actually, it's they have. I think it's a. I think it's a 360 photo somewhere on the internet. I forget exactly where, but you can basically look around, and the whole thing is just filled with switches. Up, left, right, right in front, everywhere is just switches. So now you're talking about constraining all of these different things, all of these different components into these three screens. How do you fit everything? Yeah, a great question. Well, you know, Orion doesn't have all of the subsystems that shuttle have, but they oh. still have a lot. And uh, you still got to get that stuff on a software display. Yeah. So the challenge is not only are all those switches under the glass in a software screen, but all of the procedures, that couple hundred pounds of flight data file, roughly we're working with maybe a half a pound of, of procedures, and that's to what happens if my computer goes down, I lose my screen, how do I reboot it? Oh, yeah. Because that's how you got to get access to all these different ways to turn a pump on or off or an engine or whatever it is. So that, that is uh, different, you know. You, you don't have to carry around all the switches and all the wiring, so you save weight, maybe you save some cost there. But the flip side is, you gotta put all those control points under a software screen, and you can't, you don't have the real estate in front of you, and if, you, if you're sitting there listening, just take three sheets of paper, put them eight and a half by 11 in front of you with about four to six inches in between them, and imagine you gotta put all this stuff for all these systems under there. It's very challenging. Uh, so all the work that we've been doing is how do you get access to that stuff, including all your procedures, all your little switch throws, everything you've got to do in that little amount of real estate. That's a tough challenge. Now, we've been very successful in doing that. We've got great feedback from the crew. Um, it's just different. I mean, there's certain things that were easier when you had a piece of paper in front of you and you could look at the procedure and grab over and throw the switch, that now I have to go into a menu on this screen on Orion I have to select something and drop it down and open up a display. Well, we thought about that. We can't embed things so deeply in a menu that in a critical situation, you got to find it now. Yeah. So we've had to be very creative with some uh, auxiliary or other controls that are in your hand that might allow you shortcuts to get to certain displays. So there's things that we've instituted and tried over and over in different uh, evaluations with the crew and simulations that are telling us we've got the right system, we're on the right track. Well, put, I guess put me in the seat of, uh, of, of the Orion now, because I, uh, if, I, if I was in the shuttle, I would have all of these switches around me, but now I only have a few things I can interact with and then a few different options for what I could be looking at at the same time. So I guess we'll start with what, what buttons can I press? <laughs> okay, so around each of these three 8.5 by 11 pieces of glass, are uh, several, a collection of edge keys or bezel keys. Hmm. You know, if you look at some things like an, like an F-18 or, or something like that, a cockpit, you'll see buttons around there. Well, that's one way you can press around the perimeter of that glass to interface with data under the glass. Okay. Well, let's say I'm strapped in for launch and I'm in a suit and I got these three pieces of glass, I'm laying on my back, these things are above me, visualize yourself doing that, and now I gotta push one of these buttons. It's, let's say it's in the screen that's kind of in the center between me and the other guy. All right, and I gotta reach for it. 
but my arms aren't that long, let's say, and I can't reach that button in the center of the screen on the top. How am I going to get to that? i got to do something with it. So we created something called a cursor control device, CCD for short. That goes in your left hand. It's like a mouse, but it doesn't move. You know, it physically stays fixed. Hmm. So that allows us, when we can't reach the key around the display, we can use that thing to interface inside of the display. You kind of tab around with your thumb with a rocker switch, and it moves you very quickly over something, and then you can enter and stop and press and do things inside the screen. But you have to do that with a pressurized glove, right? Yeah, when we designed it, we did a lot, we did a lot of testing. It had to work, one, for a glove, the, I guess we call it vent press. If nothing bad goes wrong, slight press suited, you know, you're suited with the glove on. Oh, yeah. If all goes well and you don't have a cabin leak, then the, the, the glove doesn't get real hard. That's but if right. it gets hard, will it still work? Yeah. You know, and then if I take the glove off and I want to use it with a bare hand, did I, did I optimize it so good for the glove that it's not comfortable for the bare hand? So we were thinking about all that stuff primarily for the glove. And we did things like take that cursor control device and put it in a glove box. You know, we reduced the pressure in there. We put our hand in a glove, put it on the cursor device. The glove swelled up, puffed up, simulating, you know, a leak in the cabin. Mm -hmm. And then we would use that and interface with a, a screen on the outside of the glove box to see how well is that working? What's the fatigue, you know, if I use this a long time and are these buttons in the right place? So... That, that turned out to be a, 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 a continual development of the shape and, and placement of these controls, but it works very well. It's amazing how many different scenarios you have to think of, because I was just thinking about just a glove, but now you're talking about a glove, a pressurized glove, and a bare hand. It's got to work in all of these different situations. So I guess you can say this cursor is very specially designed for exactly this scenario. That's exactly correct. Very specially designed. So you're, you're able to, uh, I guess, control and, and go around, but... I'm trying to imagine, what am I seeing? What am I controlling? Am I, am I controlling a mouse on the screen? Am I, or yeah. what am I doing? No, uh, good question. Uh, so with the cursor device, when you're not, you're not pushing any buttons, you want to interact with these screens in front of you. So let's take one of the screens. You've got two crew in the front of the cockpit, three screens. One of these screens is in front of the commander and the pilot. One is in the middle and is shared. Let's take the one in front of the commander. Remember I mentioned that the screen is split in half, horizontally, got a top half and a bottom half. Yeah. This cursor device, I, let's say I gotta get something inside of this screen, I got to turn a pump off. How do I get in there? So there's a switch on there called a castle switch that you can move, you can change your field of focus and where you can interact with that display. So first I gotta be able to get to that display. So what we do is we put a menu at the top of the screen, let's say. So first I gotta be able to call up the right display. So I could use that little castle switch, move it, get up to the menu, move around in there, select the thing I want, bring up a screen. Now I'm inside the screen. Now what do I do? Well now the cursor is live inside the screen. And there's a lot of little zones in there that are hot. They're a green color by nature, so that means you know you can interact with them. Hmm. So now I can use this little rocker switch. I can move around and land on the thing I want. I hit the enter button on one of those things. Well then what happens? Then I get a little pop-up window, and that tells you what you can do to that element. Turn it on, turn it off, manual, auto, whatever it is, you know, enable, inhibit, and I can move around in there and do something to it. I can change the state of it, and I do that with that cursor control device. All electronically, right? All electronically, yes. So I guess if you're looking at your systems, where, where are your procedures? Because I guess, do you have the availability to have a book on your lap like you were talking about for shuttle? 
You know you don't because oh, yeah. all those displays, all those, excuse me, all those procedures are now also under the glass. Oh. So you have to share the real estate with not only your systems display, but your, your uh, procedures and, you know, electronically. We call it EPROC for short, electronic procedures. And you might, you know, have hundreds and hundreds of those just like you had on the shuttle. You can't look at all those at once, so you bring up a screen that has a menu and says, you want to go to what system? I want to go to the uh, guidance navigation control section. Okay, open that up. There's 50, 75 procedures in there, and you either get a caution warning message that pops up, tells you which one to go to, or the ground might call and tell you, go to that one. You click on it, you can open it, bam, that procedure will pop up. And it may write over something that's on the screen before, that just means you have to, the way you manipulate the data on the screen, you, you don't want to stomp on something that you already have, so you have to be able to reorganize your layout, maybe move it to that center screen, something you were just monitoring, so I can work a procedure on something that's a problem in the screen in front of me. So you are learning to work with that um, screen management or display management, if you will. Yeah, that's right, because you can only have so many things at, on at one time and, and in your view. But I love that idea that if there's a caution or warning signal or some kind of pop-up, you can just click on the pop-up and say, okay, bring me to the procedures that is going to fix this problem or something. Is, is that what you were talking you about? Could, when you open it, there's a ways. You look at your messages. We do have some improved ways of looking at the messages. You know, before, they just came up by time on the shuttle. You got an error message, and it said maybe it said time or just came up in time. Now we can sort those by criticality. So let's see, a warning might be red and a caution might be yellow. Well, warning, I want to do something about the warning. It's red, it's bad. That's what I want to do something about first. Yeah. So, but right now, there, I got reds and yellows and they're all over the place. So I can sort the type of message it is. So I put all the red ones on top and I may even be able to sort the red with inside the group of red to tell me what's the most important. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say an electrical bus fails. That might generate five or more red messages because one, the bus failed, but a whole bunch of equipment failed behind it. So I'm getting all these messages for equipment fail, but oh, it's not man. really an equipment failure, it's a bus fail. So maybe if I was smart on the ground and I was able in software to prioritize those messages, I would say, hey, be smart enough to recognize that that's this bus and put that at the top, and so I'll work that. And so I can send that procedure to an open set of procedures and open that display and have it call up the correct systems display, the correct uh, text that tells me what to do and you know compare data or answer questions yes or no and it'll walk me through all that. So there's two interesting modes to the electronic procedures and it's really at the heart of the cockpit. Um, you can always do everything manually. You can like we talked about before with the cursor device or the bezel keys. You can punch buttons, you can get inside of a display, you can change the state of something manually. You always want to protect for that. If the ground called you and said hey we need you to throw this uh, switch or, or turn this redundant comm system on or off, I can just go to that. I don't need a whole procedure for that. So I want to be able to do that. But there's something called a guided mode with these electronic procedures that is smart enough that it will take you through them automatically. When you work a procedure, it doesn't mean you're going to be looking at just one display. You may be looking at several systems displays. Well, I don't want to have to go call them up manually and figure out where to go in there or look at the, the procedure and figure out what data they want me to compare and where is that on the screen. Well, electronic procedures in the guided mode will walk you through all that 
automated. So let's say I answer a question about, is the Freon pump on? So it is smart enough that it will call the Freon pump display with all the data about the Freon pump up for you, in addition to the text of the procedure. And then you just say, you know, yes, it's on. And then it'll automatically go to the next step in procedure. And let's say the next step is it wants you to look at something in the, the air system, the, the environmental, the, the, the pressurized air system. Well, it'll automatically call that up for you. You don't have to call it up. It'll put the cursor in the zone for, let's say, the cabin pressure. And you'll just say, hey, is it above, you know, 13 PSI? You'll just ask you a question, yes or no. You answer yes. Boom, that one's done. The procedure will index down another line all by itself. So the workload is much reduced. We actually did a, a, a study a while back to see how many, uh, how much workload you would save manually punching buttons over the computer in the EPROC guided mode helping you. And it was about 10 to 1 in the number of manual switch throws you would have to do versus having the, the system guide you through it. And it, I guess it proved to be more efficient. It's, it's much more efficient. It's really at the heart of the cockpit. And if you had to do all that manually, you know, manually call up displays, manually go back and check nominal uh, data as well as off nominal data because some of it will be underneath, it'd be an information juggling challenge. So you need some aids to help you do that. And that's what's designed into several uh, parts of the display and control system to help you manage that information. Man, I feel like, I don't want to push it, but I feel like that could be something that I could do. <laughs> you can. <laughs> if, and I, if I got the guided controls and they were just pointing me, hey, is the Freon pump? And then it shows you a Freon pump on. Okay, yeah, check. It, it, it's a little difficult to articulate, you know, in <laughs> words because you're not seeing it. And if you saw it, yeah. I could take you in there with very little knowledge about Orion or, or any cockpit. And in about two hours, I bet you would be feel very comfortable with 80% of the, the whole interface, from the cursor devices to the bezel keys to the electronic procedures, you'd say that just flows very natural. The buttons are in the right place, the logic, the way you pull the displays up in the menu, it's easy. If I need to find something, I can get to it. And you feel, feel pretty confident. Now there's that other, you know, let's say 10 to 20% that you have to design all these corner cases, you call it, where if we had to do it, we could, but I better practice those some more because I might forget those because I don't use them very often. That's right. And that's the case, too. But I tell you, we, we do a lot of evals. We, we, you know, we bring in subjects uh, for other human uh, test program things that are outside the RPL that use uh, variants of this. And, and they bring in people that are not pilots that, that do this, uh, similar type of things. We bring in crew, of course. We also uh, are bringing in uh, uh, Navy and Air Force test pilots from the test pilot schools, you know, from Pax River and Edwards Air Force Base. And now they're a different group. Obviously, they're used to cockpits, but the, the benefit we get out of them is they see all kinds of new systems that are out there. They can maybe bring something to, to, to the knowledge pool of what we've already done or, or recommend something. And we, you know, we have leveraged off their, um, their recommendations in the past. That's great. You're getting a lot of feedback from, from all different areas to make it easy, but also kind of intuitive and, and appropriate for the folks who are going to be flying it. Have you actually sat down with a, I guess, former shuttle pilot who has, who has seen both ends, the shuttle and the Orion, and maybe given you feedback there? We've had, we've had a number of them. We've had, you know, anywhere from mission specialists to a couple uh, front seat, you know, pilot wow. commander types, and, and have really gotten good feedback. I mean, the first time you see it, it's a little... You know, and like anything new, uh, how do I operate this? Yeah, you know, I'm sorry, this is uh, so new. But once you get into it, and you you know, we do our 
Orion Cockpit 101, I, I, I tell you, I could take anybody that's listening to this broadcast uh, that could get in there and they would feel pretty comfortable. Uh, now, would they retain that, you know, two weeks <laughs> from now? You know, maybe, maybe 50%. But I tell you, if you use it on a daily basis, it's very comfortable. I'm guessing you're pretty efficient at it now, right now. Pretty. You know, some of those corner <laughs> cases I need to go brush up on, you really? know, and, and if somebody asks me, I might have to, to ask the, the real experts, you know, that, are, that uh, actually created it. Uh, but um, anyway, yes, I, I, we are very confident. We are actually using it in some mini integrated simulations where we bring in the uh, flight controllers, flight directors, um, Capcom types. We have a little room up in our lab that we have audio that we can send to our crew station with the crew and the flight control. We can introduce some malfunctions and we can test not only what is it like for the crew to use the system by itself, but what happens when the flight control guys are trying to talk to you. And this is the first time they got exposure to this system. How clumsy or how good is that? You know, so what are we doing well and is there things we can improve on? So what are some of the next steps that you have to go through to make sure that this thing is ready to fly? Well, we're, you know, we're pretty far along in a number of years. We've got about 70 crew displays that we have to prototype. The oh. RPL's main charter is to prototype these 70 displays that the crew will use to monitor and control the spacecraft. Also, write the documents, we call them as-built documents, that describes how that system will work in great detail. And you read that and you have a very good feel, lots of screen snapshots for how you use it. <clears throat> so we are in the middle of prototyping all those displays. You know, maybe we're half done, but we have half to go. Yeah. So it, it's um, a lot of work, it's a small lab, you know, we've got a lot of really talented people wearing a lot of hats. and. You know, we've got to create these documents and build these prototypes, get the crew in front of them. Mm -hmm. uh, that product is, you know, a, a critical inline product to the program, uh, and it represents, you know, the crew's interface. That sounds like a lot of work, man. Not only do you have to design the interfaces and all these screens, you have to write the manual for it. That's uh, one of the <laughs> most, believe it or not, that is one of the most challenging things <laughs> on this project. Because... You know, NASA's used to reviewing stuff. If you send them uh, something, a review and paper, they'll look at it, you know. Uh, and so we've got a lot of these things going on. We have teams of folks, you know, engineers, flight controllers, systems experts, all together helping design this. And then we put these screens together. We have a lot of technical reviews. They come out in this document, and then we receive feedback. And, and then when we're happy, you know, that can move forward and be, uh, you know, uh, accepted through the software boards and, and that type of thing. So let's kind of wrap up with taking this, this technology that you guys are developing, these, these screens and these procedures, and having all of this feedback to create this beautiful, this beautiful set of procedures and technology. Is there anywhere that, these, that it can be applied? It seems very specialized, but is there anything that it can be applied to on Earth or maybe, or maybe on future missions or any, any kind of technology transfer there? Well, we, you know, interesting you say that because uh, the generic part of this software, there's a couple components on it. When I say generic, I mean the, the public affairs stuff that we can send out. There is a version of it that's available to folks. Cool. Then there's another piece of that with our displays that are, that are more proprietary. But we have made it available and some, several entities have picked up and wanted to study it and look at it. And when we built it, we actually were soliciting and looking at the designs of a lot of different things from you know, a, a submarine to military aircraft, civilian aircraft, you know, even the Airbus, the, 
you know, a nuclear power plant? How are people managing critical information? You know, and uh, what, what, what is the design we need? What can we leverage to make it do that and more? Because we've got a very complex set of tasks, you know, everything from the more mundane on orbit to the, you know, the, the uh, criticality of a launch or landing. Yeah, it seems like some seriously complicated work, but it seems like you're really trucking through it and really appreciate it. So, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on and explaining what you do and, and this work going into the spacecraft displays. They're actually going to fly on future missions. Really appreciate you describing that and coming on the podcast again. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked once again with Mr. Jeff Fox, and he gave us a little tour of the spacecraft displays that are going to be on Orion, and then also a little bit of history on what happened uh, during the shuttle days and how that sort of transitioned to some of the logic behind the system displays for the Orion. So if you want to know more specifically about Orion, nasa.gov slash guess what, Orion. Yes, that's where you can find some of the latest and greatest about that vehicle. Otherwise, you can go on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and see the latest and greatest there. On Facebook, it's NASA Orion. Twitter is at NASA underscore Orion. And Instagram is at Explore NASA. That one actually has Orion and the space launch system, which we've talked about a couple episodes ago. You can use the hashtag on hashtag AskNASA, there it is, on any one of those platforms to uh, ask a question about Orion, or you can go to the NASA Johnson Space Center accounts on any one of those platforms and submit a question for Houston. We have a podcast. We might bring it on uh, one of the future episodes or make a whole episode out of it, which we've actually done a couple times. So this podcast was recorded on March 21st, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Greg Wiseman, Tommy Gerzik, Rachel Kraft, Laura Rashawn, Brandy Dean, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, and Kelly Humphreys. A lot of people to thank for this one. And thanks again to Jeff Fox for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.